Hello, welcome to the Healthy for Men podumentary series. My name's Tom Rowley. I'm the editor of Healthy for Men magazine. Before we get going, just a quick partnership announcement. This episode is brought to you by Bounce Foods. Now, Bounce's mission is to inspire positive change in the way people eat, think and live, which is what the Healthy for Men podumentary series is all about. If you haven't tried Bounce Balls before, they're full of high quality protein, high quality vitamins and minerals, and they're great for when you're on the go and you need a quick snack. There's also a vegan option called V-Life, which are made from almonds and plant protein. Super tasty, super convenient. Grab a Bounce Ball from any Holland and Barrett store throughout the UK or visit bouncefoods.com for more information. Hello, thank you for downloading this bonus episode of the Healthy for Men podumentary series. In this episode, we speak to experienced dietitian Sophie Medlin about vegan nutrition. If you haven't already listened to our second episode of the Healthy for Men podumentary series called Should I Go Vegan? Please give it a listen. In the episode, we speak to YouTube chef Gaz Oakley, vegan bodybuilder Corin Sutton, and nutrition consultant Drew Price. Uh, also, Sean Callahan, otherwise known as Fat Gay Vegan. All about whether a plant-based diet is good for you or not. Uh, we explore the science behind vegan nutrition and look at cases of those who've benefited from plant-based food and those whose health has suffered from giving up animal products. We also take a look at some of the reasons and ethics behind the vegan lifestyle, the growing vegan market, and we learn about zero-carb carnivory. Uh, speaking of zero-carb carnivory, we'll be releasing a full conversation with Hugh Davis, uh, the zero-carb carnivore, from the Should I Go Vegan episode next week. If you've heard the conversation from the episode, it was a fascinating conversation, which definitely opened her eyes to the world of carnivory and zero carbing. But in the meantime, here's our conversation with dietitian Sophie Medlin. Okay, Sophie, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So um, to start with, could you explain about what you do uh, and define a, a dietitian for us? Yeah, of course. So um, as a dietitian by profession, um, I've done all kinds of things uh, um, under that title. So for, for about eight years, I worked in the NHS and my specialty within the NHS was looking after people who can't eat anything at all. So we fed people into their veins or through tubes. Uh, and that's probably a side of dietetics or, and nutrition that people don't know very much about. When I moved out of that arena, I started lecturing uh, in nutrition and dietetics about four years ago now. Uh, so I lecture and research in nutrition and dietetics, and I uh, also run my own private practice and do a lot of work in social media and in that sort of arena as well. So I've got had a really nice varied career, and I'm really lucky I do something that I absolutely love. So in terms of defining the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian, um, Dietitians generally are trained in sort of the medical management of nutritional problems. So we would be the people who, if you went into the NHS and you needed to see someone about your diet, you would see a dietitian rather than a nutritionist. There's various different reasons for that. So uh, a nutritionist studies like the science of nutrition, as do we as dietitians. But we then also learn to apply that science to, to humans, to medicine and to treating conditions. So... Anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. It's not a protected title, but dietitians are regulated uh, and managed. And so you can't call yourself a dietitian unless you've done full training and you've been working in hospitals and all sorts of things. I see. Okay, so you're really practicing what you're yeah. what you're learning, and essentially, yeah. So, um, what is it about being a dietitian that made you want to take it on and, and and give people that kind of treatment? 
I was super lucky. So when I was 15, I was doing um, catering as a GCSE and my teacher said, hey, I think you'd be really good at this. And I looked into it and I found my path and I've, I've loved it ever since. So I'm really lucky. Yeah. Um, what I love about it is, is making people better. So, for example, I saw a girl uh, a few days ago who had horrendous irritable bowel syndrome. So she was uh, struggling to get to the bathroom on time, was really limiting her life and following treatment. She now never has any of those symptoms. Her quality of life is significantly better and she's a much healthier, happier person. And treating people, making people better in that way is such a privilege. And I absolutely love it. Excellent. Yeah. Do you find it a challenge at all to get people to make the right decisions to cure these ailments that they might be experiencing? It depends on, on the condition. So something like that, someone is, you know, if someone's struggling to not be incontinent as a grown woman or a grown man, you are going to make the changes necessary. People are completely on board. That's easy. Uh, where there's more of a challenge is things like um, when we're looking, when I'm looking after people who have weight management problems, so who need to lose weight. There's so much psychology tied up with that. There's so much, it's so much more about why we eat what we eat rather than what we're eating. Most people know that they need to eat five portions of fruit and vegetables a day. And if they want to lose weight, eat a bit less cake or whatever. But actually doing that practically in your life is very difficult. And that's where so much of our behaviour change, counselling skills, motivational interviewing, that's where that all comes in, really. Right. So you have to kind of work to change people's philosophy in general yeah, in that and, approach. And Changing habits is hard um, for people, especially when those habits are tied up with um, emotional things and comfort eating and that sort of thing. So what are the main issues today that you experience with the modern nutritional fads that people are going through? So from a fad perspective, one of the issues is, of course, social media and the way that that promotes all kinds of different messages to people. So, um, you know, we've been through a cycle of, of things like uh, people cutting out dairy being really popular, and I think we'll talk more about that later. Things like clean eating, which has sort of uh, had a bit of a backlash against it, and people are sort of talking uh, against that now a bit more. Um, but the thing with social media nutrition is that anyone can say anything they like. So remember when raspberry ketones were massive for weight loss and... People are selling all kinds of supplements and nonsense and stuff that's never going to work, but they can say it does. And that's OK because it's not regulated. Um, so people make all these claims that are nonsense. And then you have regulated healthcare professionals like myself who have to say proper evidence based messages. So everything that I say has to be evidence based. I can't tell you anything that's not scientifically proven and demonstrated, which means I can't say to you buy my diet plan because it's going to work for you because I can't guarantee it will work for you without having seen you in practice and looked after you properly and knowing you as a human. So our messages as a scientific community are uh, somewhat lost in that noise of people making these big claims and these big bold statements where, where we can't make those claims. So you're constantly fighting a battle of, of evidence and, and facts against... Yeah, science versus fiction, as I like to call it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, it sounds it, yeah. Um, I'd love to break down all those different uh, fads. Um, but let's, we'll, we'll talk about dairy a bit. Um, so you've had some, a bit of controversy with some things you've said about dairy. And uh, um, what is it that we fundamentally, as a whole society, need from animal products yeah so um it depends on how you want to divide that up so um dairy is a great source of nutrition of, of complete nutrition essentially so we're getting lots of things like vitamin b12 which is quite difficult to source from other places it's complete in amino acids so if you're looking to build muscle for example it's a great source of protein for building muscle 
arguably the best source when you look at the uh, when they look at the scientific literature, which is why whey protein is so effective helping people gain muscle because it's just byproduct of the dairy industry. Um, there's there's obviously the calcium which is really important, and plant-based calcium is much more difficult for our body to access and use. So there's sort of the differences are the bioavailability of proteins, of vitamins and minerals that we need, that we can get from dairy really, really effectively. It's, it's a really, really useful source of really good quality nutrition. And one of my issues is that there's a real um, difference between people who can afford, who are saying, oh, no, plant-based milks, you shouldn't drink dairy, and people who are relying on dairy for good quality nutrition. It's really cheap, it's really available, and demonising it puts loads of people at risk of osteoporosis. People who can't necessarily afford all of the you know, plant-based sources of calcium, can't afford supplements, don't want to take supplements, don't know what risks they're putting themselves under. Uh, that concerns me, and I think this demonisation of a really good quality food staple to me, is really irresponsible. Right, yeah. So you're fighting against the kind of overarching theory that everyone needs to give up meat, everyone needs to give up dairy products. Essentially, we don't understand everyone's situation and some people, like you say, completely need uh, to have access to dairy products because they can't afford this. It's a luxury to be able to have that kind of choice to just eat plant-based. Yeah, or um, they... Don't, yeah, they haven't got the choice or they have medical conditions where actually dairy is really, really valuable and really important um, or they're teenagers and their bones are growing. So one thing that we don't talk about very much is the fact that you have this, this really crucial bracket in your life between from when you're born to when you're about 30 where your bones get as strong as they can possibly be. And if your bones are never sort of populated with minerals, with calcium, with magnesium, with these things that we get from dairy primarily. So when we look at the UK diet, the British diet, dairy is our main source of these minerals. Um, if you don't strengthen your bones as optimally as you can up to the age of 30, it's literally downhill from that. You will never, your bones will never be as strong as they could be. And we call that peak bone mass. And a lot of these messages are targeted at teenagers, lots of young people are coming off dairy without necessarily understanding the consequences, the potential future consequences of having osteoporosis much earlier than anyone would want anyone to have it. So do you think that's going to lead to a, a crisis of osteoporosis? Yeah, I mean, the Osteoporosis Society have said and released a statement saying that there is a ticking time bomb for teenagers' bone health. Right. Okay. What about athletes uh, who have gone, I mean, you, you hear sort of stories of athletes who've gone vegan and uh, David Hay was, was one that's mentioned in, in the news and there's various vegan bodybuilders. Um, obviously, they have access to all the materials they need to do it, essentially. Yeah. Uh, but do you think that that's healthy for them? Oh, it's very difficult to say. So following a very carefully planned and thought through plant-based diet with supplementation can be super healthy and it can definitely, you know, help people achieve that, not necessarily help people achieve their goals. You can achieve your goals that way. Um, but the thing with following a plant-based diet is that it, it becomes a very important part of your day-to-day -day lifestyle or it needs to be a very important part of your day-to-day -day lifestyle in order for you to achieve it, achieve it to be balanced. So to get everything that you need, you need to be thinking about what's my next meal going to be? Where am I going to buy it from? Am I going to have to make it? Is it completely balanced? Am I getting all the amino acids I need? Have I had enough vitamin D today? Have I had enough vitamin B12 today? Have I had my algae supplements? All these things that you need to be thinking about on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're a professional bodybuilder or a professional athlete, part of your life is making sure that your diet is completely balanced all the time. And it's essential. 
and they'll have people around them to help support them with that. If you are uh, a regular guy who's going to the gym every day and trying to train and trying to change his body and you also have a full-time job and you're also thinking about maybe your family at home or other, other responsibilities you've got to juggle, it's much, much easier and much more convenient to get those nutrients from meat and dairy. It's just, it's, they're much more bioavailable. They're much easier to, to access. They're easier for our bodies to access. They're cheaper. It's easier. Mm-hmm. So with great support and with people preparing your meals or meal prep being part of your life because it's part of your job, then that's great. That's great. But that doesn't work for everybody. So you mentioned about social media before. What do you think it is about social media that is making people think that they can have a plant-based diet and, and have as much success as, say, an athlete's? I think it's that lack of, uh, of acknowledgement or recognition that these people who are uh, not all plant-based people, obviously some people are living normal lives as well and, and are well with it because they've chosen to dedicate so much of their life to it. Um, one of the things with the social media people that you come across are that is, is this thing about that it's their whole life. It's their job to look like that. It's their job to train. It's their job to eat a certain way. They're making their money from following a plant-based diet and posting pictures and getting promotional you know, money from that. So people think, oh, just eat like me to look like me. And actually it's way more complicated than that when you live in the real world and it's not your job to look like that. So they're kind of polarizing it by demonstrating the extreme and pushing that in people's, onto people's feeds. Yeah, making people feel like they're inadequate if they can't achieve that. And I think to me, that's a massive issue. You know, there's girls and men running around with a ridiculously low body fat percentage and that's great for them if they can maintain it's not so good for women from a metabolic perspective and from from a hormonal perspective but for men fine if you can achieve that then great but if you spend eight hours of your day sat at a desk it's very difficult to achieve that and you know aiming for that level of perfection that level of six-pack definition or whatever it is you're looking for is is very hard for most people so what are the other issues with a vegan diet as far as something like uh losing fat or or creating muscle. Obviously, there's the, the, the biggest discussion is the protein. Yeah, um, yeah. But what are the other aspects of it that might be an issue for someone? So B vitamins are really important for breaking down fat and for using energy appropriately and properly. Um, so it's very easy. Something like 50% of vegans, when we've studied them in, in population health studies, are, are vitamin B12 deficient, which is a really essential uh, for our nerve function and all kinds of other things as well. We can't live without it. Um, so there's issues around vitamin and mineral deficiency, but also, as you say, if you're t- sort of planning meals and trying to get enough protein in, then it can be very difficult. And the sort of particular amino acids that you need to promote or to, to stimulate muscle growth are much, much more easily readily available from a meat or dairy, either meat or dairy. Um, it's not to say you can't get them from a plant-based diet, but balancing your kind of carbohydrate versus your protein intake is more of a challenge. You can do it if you really want to focus on it and that's what you really want to do, but it is more of a challenge. Yeah, okay. What about people who say that um, whatever the cost of it is to their health, and you know, I think most vegans I speak to um, do thoroughly believe it's, it is very good for you and, it's, and meat is actually really bad for you. And uh, there's lots of statistics that um, people bring up about uh, carcinogenic meats and processed meats, all that kind of thing. Um, what about the ethical side of it? So they're, they're using that uh, as an anchor for their vegan lifestyle. But essentially what they're saying is that the um, ethical implications are much more important. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, that's it's almost like um, a religion in that sense. In, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way whatsoever. If people feel that passionately about it and they are that on board with it and they want to dedicate that much time in their life to uh, making sure that their diet's nutritionally balanced and they believe in it so firmly about the ethical perspective, hats off to them. You know, that's that's their choice and that's how they choose to live their life. And, you know, all of these, that is a bit of a... Um, religious type decision that people make and they're on this path and they feel very strongly about it and that that's great if that's if that's what you want to do then I totally respect it and I've said before that uh, I'm probably a bit of a um, ethical vegan but practicing meat eater because ultimately I understand what they're saying I understand why they would make those choices from an ethical perspective right okay so do you think the world would be a better place if we were all vegan um that's a very difficult thing to answer mm -hmm. I think there would be you know vast issues with nutrition and uh that that's yeah i think you know obviously i'm against animals being treated cruelly everyone mm -hmm. is uh, there's nothing people don't want to see animals being treated badly mm -hmm. or or being in horrible situations no one wants that and we should all definitely cut back on the amount of meat we eat but uh to demonize it in that way to everybody you know if you're eating from a food bank you can't make choices about what where your next meal comes from Absolutely, so yeah. To make people feel awful about it, I don't think is the right thing. So one of the things that is a bit of a challenge is that I get lots of people coming to talk to me about their vegan diet. So one, one of the good things is that I, as a result of um, vegans being very negative about the things I've said, I've also had lots of vegans come to me for help to make sure their diet is balanced, and that's great. And the advice that I always give is that people uh, absolutely need supplementation with these essential fatty acids that we were talking about earlier. And there's only really one vegan source of those, and that's the algae supplements. So they need to be looking at the algae supplements that um, uh, contain the EPA and DHA. So it's about it's kind of a, a more refined version of omega-3, and that really needs to come from the algae supplements to be a, a truly vegan source of those. So uh, I get vegans saying to me, oh, I've always just taken these nut oils and I've eaten a lot of nuts, and that's not the right source. That you know, uh, Oils from anything apart from uh, the algae source are not uh, going to give you the essential fatty acids that you need. Um, people definitely need vitamin B12 supplementation, absolutely essential, um, and that's available from Orga Chemist or from Shall I say Holland and Barrett or not? And will be also available from Holland and Barrett, as are the algae supplements. Um, the other thing that would be really worthwhile taking is calcium and vitamin D together in a supplement, and that will protect bone health in the future. But also vitamin D is also quite difficult to get from a vegan diet too, so definitely worth supplementing them. And if you're covering those bases, then you know it can be a really healthy diet for people. Fantastic. So what kind of uh, products can people buy with algae in? Well, I, there are some that contain the algae that is required, but really your best bet to ensure that you're getting it and, and uh, to make sure you're taking that box is to buy it as a supplement form. Right, okay, so capsules. Or, yeah. yeah, and then lots of vegan products are supplemented with vitamin B12, which is great, um, and you can get calcium from a vegan diet, but um, it's really important that you try and get up to five um, portions of calcium-rich vegan foods in every day, and that's because um, the calcium that's in um, vegan foods, in plant-based foods, is not as easily accessed by our body, so we need to make sure we're getting loads of it to make sure that we're getting enough in. Okay, uh, I have another question for you, actually. Um, what about soy products? Do you, do you take any issue with people supplementing uh, soy products instead of meats? Oh, that's a, that's a really difficult question. So um, one thing that's interesting about soy products is that we would never let 
young boys have soya products so they're not recommended for children whose um, kind of reproductive organs are developing especially boys because we know that they have all of these uh, naturally occurring sort of estrogen type uh, factors in them and so when we then think about vegan bodybuilders supplementing their bodies with stacks and stacks of soya protein you know we're not that's not regular we're not talking about that no one's talking about that at the moment in my community so the answer to your question is we've looked we've studied one end of that spectrum and we've looked at it in in developing boys and we know that soya isn't right for developing boys uh, if i was a grown man would i be wanting to take who was maybe thinking about having a family one day would i be wanting to eat lots of soya and have lots of soy protein no i wouldn't has that research been married up and looked at carefully and do i know that as a scientific fact that that's the right thing to say no i don't so andy you had a few points that you wanted to bring up yes yeah, so taking on board the uh, the growing vegan presence which is online at the moment um some on the other side of the argument may say that they're pushing pseudoscience but that in mind do you think there's something we can learn uh, from their plant-based studies, which uh, they're kind of pushing more? So, for example, the Netflix film that came out last year, What the Health? Earlier on, you were mentioning about osteoporosis. Uh, this is one of the, the many elements they mention within the film. Um, they kind of say the opposite side to what you're saying, though. So they're saying that the overconsumption of too much dairy could actually cause uh, bad bone health. Um, do you think there's something in this uh, or do you think maybe they're just com talking complete nonsense? Oh, no, you, like, we can't say it's complete nonsense. We never know the definite answers in terms of nutrition. And that's one of the difficulties is that it's a very polarised thing in the, in the science, in the literature. Uh, you know, you can, pre you can interpret data in all kinds of different ways, which is how we've ended up in this massive debate about whether carbohydrates are the cause of problems or whether it's fat that's the cause of our, our, our health problems. You know, you can literally interpret that data in a couple of different ways. And we've gone down a path. You know, science is never, particularly with nutrition, it's never exact. Um, one of the reasons for that is that people eat in really different ways. So, yeah, probably if you drink five litres of milk a day, then, yeah, your bones are going to suffer because the protein impacts on bone function and all kinds of different things. Um, it's about balance in the end. Uh, and ultimately, if you eat a balanced diet, which in, can include meat and dairy, or, but doesn't have to, then you can achieve what you want nutritionally and your body will be healthy. Um, the, the way that meat and dairy are demonized and that you people are saying that actually you know it's bad for you yes there is some evidence that obviously meat we know is carcinogenic in some forms however you're comparing two groups that are completely different when you look at that literature so you're looking at people who eat say bacon for breakfast a sausage sandwich at lunchtime and then some more processed meat in the evening those people are included in the meat eater group yeah whereas if you're talking about vegetarians for example they tend to be much more diet conscious. They tend to live in a certain way. Uh, their diet tends to be more balanced because they tend to be from a higher socioeconomic group, from a more educated group, just because of the demographic. And it's just the way it is. And then vegans, again, even more careful with their diet, even more diet conscious, hopefully. And I'm just doing some research on this at the moment, actually. Um, so in theory, the nutritional knowledge and the socioeconomic background of the vegetarian and vegan group is very, very different to the meat eater group which will vary from people eating processed meat for breakfast, lunch and dinner, all the way through to people who only eat, say, steak, ethically sourced steak twice a week. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. that variation in the meat eater department isn't a fair comparison to the other groups. So um, 
when we look at the literature, it's very difficult to differentiate those. So, well, yes, overeating meat in that way in that way can be carcinogenic, sure. but there's downsides to the other side of the argument as well, and we can't really compare the whole thing in a fair way. It's very difficult to do so within the literature that we've got at the moment. It's like confirmation bias, isn't it? You Absolutely. Know, you, you want to make that point. You look at you know people who have who have got cancer, and, and you know they've been told that they've eaten too much red meat, so they therefore red meat is bad. And you'll kind of use that information. That must be quite yeah. frustrating for you as someone who's trying to use all the evidence to paint an objective picture of, of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there, you know, understanding and interpreting nutritional science is something that takes a huge amount of time to do. You know, we teach our students to do a four-year undergraduate degree, and by the end of that, some of them will still really struggle with interpreting nutritional science. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy thing to do because of all these things that we've talked about, because of. The fact that, and also not just because it's difficult to interpret correctly, but also, uh, you know, to truly control for nutrition, you'd need to have, you'd need to have people in such a controlled environment. So again, for example, people who are eating a lot of processed meat probably also uh, do a lot of other behaviours that perhaps put them at higher risk of things like cancer as well and heart disease. So for example, um, people within that bracket are more likely to smoke, they're more likely to drink too much alcohol, they're more likely to be not looking after their health in lots of other ways as well. Whereas if you are following a much carefully planned diet, much more carefully planned diet, chances are you're not smoking, chances are you're exercising, chances are you're looking after yourself in all other ways as well. And that's where those, it's very difficult to differentiate those lifestyle factors. And I suppose on the other side of that, when they do tests on people who have a vegan diet, those people are very likely to be... uh, fit and healthy in various other ways and be very conscious of their health so yeah they yeah. need to be the uh the kind of um poster child for for yeah, veganism definitely. In, in that sense. Yeah. although we've got some really interesting uh literature come out of king's recently about so we con- we used vegans as a control group for not having some of our essential fatty acids that we need in our diet which generally come from fish and fish oils and uh we compared the vegan group because they don't have those essential fatty acids to people who do include dairy and meat and and fish in their diet and we're looking at heart rate variability so the group that studied this were looking at heart rate variability which means how your heart can adjust to various different uh activities in the day like Mm -hmm. climbing upstairs for example your heart needs to do different types of work at different times and what we found was that the vegan groups struggle more with heart rate so effective and healthy heart rate variability Mm -hmm. because they're missing that essential amino acids that essential fatty acid sorry so if we study it, which we haven't extensively, then we can see the pitfalls. But at the moment, we haven't done that level of literature, of, of sorry, of research within that population group, particularly this new wave of veganism, which is not as well planned, not as well thought through mm-hmm. as it has been in the past, where people are making a choice to be a vegan through very carefully planned diets and looking after it very carefully, whereas now it's a bit more of a um, I really would like not to say fad, but that's the word that comes mm. to my mind. Um, you know, people are just cutting it out and not necessarily planning things and not hearing the messages about there being risks for them. People don't hear those messages in this massive um, wave of information about how wonderful it is and that they're doing the right thing. And, and social media certainly doesn't help with that. So, you know, recently Facebook's come under fire for the information that they were doing around the elections. Well, your your news feed is filtered by what you search for. If you search for pro-vegan things, you are going to get loads of pro-vegan information. Whereas if you search for, if you're looking at things about meat, then you're going to get loads of recipes for meat thrown mm. at you. And it's 
you know, we're very polarised in that way by what we hear and what we see. Yeah, it's important to come out of our little information bubbles yeah. and dip our toes into other waters, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, I was having a conversation on social media with a girl yesterday who was saying she's studying law and she's saying to me, I've read both sides of the literature and you're wrong. I'm sorry, but you're wrong. And that's incredibly patronising. You know, I've dedicated my life to nutritional science. I've been a nutritional scientist for a long time, for over a decade. You know, I studied it for four years before that. You know, it's not like I'm just saying, oh, you're wrong. This is my life. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it because I've read a couple of articles or I've read one side and I've read the other side. Yeah. I'm talking from, you know, a, an expert perspective and people who are not an expert still say you're wrong and are so, you know, so dogmatic in their belief of that that it's very difficult to bite your tongue sometimes i can imagine yeah so what's the most challenging uh, argument you've had so far well i mean i did a tv piece about veganism last summer i think must be coming up for a year ago now and um people the backlash from that was pretty horrendous and i was saying the sorts of things i'm saying now so a well-planned vegan diet can meet people's nutritional needs but it's much more difficult to do that. And it's much more challenging for some groups of people. And um, people, it was really horrendous. Like from, from, I think if you are proud of the way that that community hit back against me for those sorts of things, I think that's not something I would ever want to be part of. People were saying, I don't know if you can keep this on the podcast, but a woman said to me, you must have sucked dick to get to where you are. Men were saying, I can't believe that you look like that and you're on TV. People, are, you know, people attack your appearance, people attack your uh, ev everything about you mm -hmm. when you're not saying the things that they want to hear. And that's, I was literally saying, you just need to be a bit more careful and plan your diet carefully. I mean, that's disgusting. Yeah, oh yeah. The, um, you know, my poor mum was mm -hmm. devastated. She I said, can I can't believe that they treat animals so nicely, but they're so mean to you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if it comes from a place of compassion to treat mm. another being in that way is, is completely hypocritical. Yeah. Um, but then again, I suppose we have to come to expect it from the internet. Yeah, and days. Twitter is the worst place ever. Unfortunately, yeah, absolutely. At least on Facebook, yeah. you can sort of uh, form an argument and you can talk to, you have more characters, whereas Twitter is just brutal. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the people who are watching your interview and thinking, okay, now I understand, they're probably not going to tweet at you. Exactly, you know, they're, exactly. They're just going to get on with their lives. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, which is very unfortunate. Um, have you ever had um, a debate with uh, a vegan or another nutritionist who might be more supportive of, of veganism and had any of your views challenged to an extent that you might uh, question some of the data that you've got? I mean, I'm, I'm constantly looking at the data. I'm constantly looking at the new papers coming out about plant-based diets. And we are starting to research it now. And it's an exciting mm. time, you know. Certainly, we can see some of the benefits and we can see where the benefits start falling off in terms of inclusion or, or not including certain foods in your diet. Mm. Um, I'm not anti-plant-based diets in, in any way. I'm saying that it's very difficult for, for a lot of people to meet their nutritional needs through a plant-based diet. And my colleagues who are vegans, my colleagues who are vegetarians, there's not a lot of us in there. There's lots of vegetarians in the dietetic community. Mm. There's not many vegans. But those, of them, those people who are vegan, they, they know that it's difficult to plan it. They know that it's difficult to manage it. You know, as a, as a nutritional scientist, I would find it hard to make sure my diet was balanced every day. And they, you know, there's no argument about what I've said. You know, the argument is around, is it the right thing ethically? Is it the right thing from an environmental perspective? All those things. And that's not my area to discuss. Of course, yeah. Okay. Um, 
I mean, that's fascinating um, to hear it like that. Um, so do we need meat or do you think that actually people should be vegetarians? Um, I think everyone should. It should be about choice. I think, you know, probably one of the healthiest diets we can follow is a pescatarian diet. So we don't have, that's where you just include fish and dairy and vegetables, but no meat. Um, those populations who follow a largely pescatarian diet, when we look at studying them, you know, their health outcomes are, are really great. Um, meat is a really useful source of lots of different nutrients. I think certainly the way that we use meat now is really unhealthy. We probably only need meat a couple of times a week, three times a week maybe. And, and you know, when I talk about these things, I'm talking about the healthy population rather than some of my patients who I look after who maybe don't absorb all the nutrients from their food and need a lot more meat and a lot more, you know, nutritionally dense foods in their diet. Um, you know, things like buying loads of meat and then throwing meat away to me feels horrible. It doesn't feel like the right thing to do at all. Um, one of the things that can be really helpful is only eating meat if you go out to eat, going out for dinner. So you keep it as a treat rather than having it in the house or eating it on a daily basis. Um, people who are eating meat three times a day, twice a day, that's too much meat for any human. Um, but yeah, well, you know, it's a very useful source of high quality nutrition for most people. I suppose traditionally indigenous peoples would celebrate over a hunt and just have that meat uh, however often they would and it would be an event rather than uh, sort of on tap and yeah um, absolutely in yeah. a way we should perhaps go back to that kind of celebratory attitude towards towards eating meat agreed andy did you have any more points yes yeah, so uh, it's become uh, more public knowledge recently that uh, GPs don't really study that much nutrition when they're at medical school. So I believe they do something like one or two uh, modules as a crash course over it, over the whole time there. Um, so two parts of this question. Do you think, one, they should definitely learn more? And then on the wider sort of sense of things, should they then be treating food like a medicine rather than just something we use to stay alive? So should we be thinking about things like... Uh, Kids who may have too much sugar in their diet cause them to crash and then um, ultimately affecting their mental well-being. Uh, and then that, that can also lead to problems where they then go to the doctor and then they're missed, sort of diagnosed uh, with maybe a mental health condition where it could be something as simple as just changing up their diet. Yeah, great question. So I think um, uh, doctors get maybe... They definitely don't even do a full module in nutrition in medical school. So uh, we train some students who do a full master's in nutrition as part of their medical degree. So they've done, you know, they've done a really extra extended nutrition part of their degree. Uh, most doctors will do, you know, a few lectures in nutrition and, and nothing else. And that's... Um, difficult because people often say to dietitians and to nutritionists, oh... Uh, he's a doctor, so I believe him. She's a doctor, so I believe her. She knows more than you. And actually, they've had two days of nutrition training, and that's it. Uh, so it's difficult. Uh, there were some articles out recently about the little medical trials, sorry, nutritional training that doctors do get, and them sort of saying, well, we need to be um, taught more about nutrition. And, and great, I think they should. They should understand you know, the benefits of a healthy, balanced diet and what that means for most people. Um, However, there are dietitians in the NHS and actually from my perspective, you'd be much better off, refer GPs would be much better off referring people to their expert colleagues rather than learning a little bit more about nutrition and trying to tell people about it in a, in a 15 minute, 10 minute appointment. So 
we exist as a professional body and we have existed for a really long time. We're a relatively well-established profession. There's not enough of us. But if GPs start saying, hey, hang on, actually what we need to do is have more dietitians to treat these people, that to me would be a much more logical step rather than GP saying we need more training in nutrition. Refer to your expert colleagues that we're here, you know, we have the knowledge and that's what we're there for. So what we know about people with um, mental health problems is that they're, and depression particularly, is that they, as a population, when we study them, there's lots of incidents of um, poor nutritional quality in terms of diets but also there's lots of incidents of uh, nutritional deficiencies in that patient group so people with mental health problems often have nutritional deficiencies when we study them now what we don't know is whether uh, those nutritional deficiencies exist before their mental health problems develop so is the is the nutritional issue the cause or is it a consequence of them not looking after themselves very well because of their poor mental health so, again, that's an area that we're working on at King's, where it's being worked on is to try and establish whether it's, that, whether it's cause or effect in terms of mental health. But certainly, um, the poorer your mental health, the less likely you are to eat a balanced diet. And therefore, you know, that can definitely be a, an ongoing effect. Absolutely. Fantastic. Great. Well, um, Sophie, thank you so much for your time. You're thank very you for welcome. Coming. Um, it's been really interesting and enlightening speaking to you. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Sophie Medlin. Um, if you haven't already, please pick up your copy of Healthy for Men magazine in any Holland and Barrett store throughout the UK. Uh, and please share the episode, leave a rating and a review if you have time. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and we'll see you next week when we explore carnivory.